the boards in front of the 200. Dr. Grayson, Sedestin are challenging and better loosen up on the extreme outside. Sedestin and better loosen up. Come away, they're fighting it out. Better loosen up on the extreme outside is roaring clear and better loosen up wins the Sajjano. Sedestin second. This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Pride's Easy Feed. In 2019, a horse race called the Golden Eagle swooped onto the Sydney racing scene just like the bird of prey after which it is named. The first two editions of the new four-year-old race carried $8 million. Last year it went to $10 million and it's the same this year. 10% of that prize money will go to charities nominated by the owners of Golden Eagle Runners. Colding overcame a chequered passage to win the first Eagle for Chris Waller and Glenn Boss less than a month after winning the Epsom. In 2020, 18 four-year-olds slogged through heavy nine going with victory going to Godolphin's Colette who'd won the Oaks in her previous preparation. It was a magic moment for young jockey Kobe Jennings, whose weight problems are well documented. Colette beat another mare, Ice Bath, who would go on to run four Group 1 placings before finally winning at the elite level two years later. There's a sad aspect to the 2021 edition, won by I'm Thunderstruck, snatching victory in the last few strides from Count to Rupee by a bizarre twist of fate. Both of those wonderful horses have since passed on. I'm Thunderstruck died following knee surgery this year, while Count to Rupee suffered a cardiac arrest in a Kembla jump out in 2022. Last year it was expat New Zealander, I wish I win, for horse born with a twisted foreleg. It hasn't worried him, because he was gallant in beating quality mare Fan Girl. Part owner and trainer Peter Moody was delighted to renew his association with jockey Luke Nolan, the black caviar combination. Saturday, November the 4th is the date and the Golden Eagle will be supported by the Giga Kickstakes, the Rose Hill Cup and the Four Pillars as the Sydney Spring Carnival rolls on. Brian Fletcher was faced with a tough decision when invited to take up the role of CEO for the Panthers Group in 2016. He'd achieved everything he'd set out to do in 28 years as CEO of the historic Hawkesbury Race Club, and some of his innovations had been groundbreaking. He'd politely declined several other approaches within the racing industry over the years, but the Panthers' offer aroused his interest. He'd had an underlying passion for rugby league for most of his life and was excited by the prospect of being part of a vibrant organisation which seemed to be heading in the right direction. He'd been on the Panthers board for five years while still working for the Hawkesbury Club, filling the role as chairman for the last two. He was then 63 and he knew he couldn't leave it too much longer if he were to take up this bold new challenge. After a lengthy deliberation, the Canamble-born Dynamo decided to accept the offer. The Hawkesbury Committee were obviously sorry to learn of his decision. The Panthers group has been richer for his guidance through seven years of spectacular growth in membership and infrastructure, while the Panthers' NRL side 
has featured in four grand finals, emerging victorious in the last three. Let's talk to the man who has excelled in the administration of two iconic sports. Brian Fletcher, great to catch up. Thanks for joining us. Good, John. No, pleased to speak to you and uh, thanks for that introduction. It was marvellous. All true, mate. Brian, allow me to join the countless number of people who've offered congratulations to you on the Panthers' third straight premiership win and their fourth appearance in a grand final, we mustn't forget. Yeah, no, it's been a marvellous effort by all the coaches and the players and and from the chairman and the directors as well. To play in the last uh, four grand finals is something probably you dream of and um, and to be a little part of that as the group CEO, it's been special, it's been a great ride and... Um, I don't think, as Nathan Cleary said the other day, I don't think we're at the end of the road yet, that uh, yeah. the team only averages 26 years of age, so there's a bit of fun ahead of us. It was nail-biting stuff, and they literally snatched victory from the jaws of defeat. Had you given up when the Broncos led 24-8, 16 minutes into the second half? John, when it was 24-8, I just thought to myself, I just hope they don't get embarrassed because they were minor premiers. They'd won the last two premierships and played in the prior grand final. As soon as I thought that, uh, Nathan broke through and Moses Leota scored a try. And I said to the chairman, I looked up and it was 16 minutes to go, and I said to the chairman, Peter Graham, uh, I think we're right now. Don't give up. We're back on track. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, Cleary, as you said, started to weave his magic. He sent Leota over. He sent Crichton over, he converted both tries and the score moved to 24-20. This was high drama. The tension must have been unbearable up there in the corporate box. Yeah, it was. With all Everybody was on edge and uh, we went from sort of the Panther supporters being very quiet to the, and the Broncos were screaming and roaring and they were prepared preparing for success because they were so far ahead. Mm. But it all changed. Next minute, the Broncos were quiet and we were cheering and roaring and hoping that we could get over the line again. And then the magic man got the ball and uh, sliced inside a bit. Three gun players from the Broncos and scored under the post. And I bet there were grown men crying up there in the corporate (laughs) box. (laughs) There was, yeah. (laughs) There were people crying with excitement and there was the other side crying with devastation. Yeah. Brian, do you have much contact with Matt Cameron, the CEO of the football club, and with Ivan Cleary, and with the players for that matter? Yeah, yeah I, I have a lot to do with Matt Cameron and um, and Ivan. Like Matt had to organise everything after the game, whether we won or we lost. There was two sides of what we had to do, and uh, Ivan got back to the club. They didn't get back till well after midnight, Ivan and the players and, mm. and Matt at the time. They... Uh, celebrated at the ground and so forth. But we came back. I got back about 12.30. We had to get a police escort off Mulgoa Road. You couldn't get it down the road because the people were all <laughs> over the road. And, oh, and when you got back to the club, it was it was unbelievable, the scenes of excitement. And, um, yeah, it's, it's a city full of rugby league lovers, Penrith. Well, it's now history that Ivan Cleary terminated his arrangements with the West Tigers to come back to the Panthers in 2018. You gave him a five-year contract with the expectation that he might take them to a premiership win within that time. I think it's fair to say he's exceeded those expectations. 
I think he's done okay. And uh, he'll probably get another five-year one shortly. <laughs> I imagine. Well, they won't be resting on their laurels in 2024. Uh, they've just become the first club to win three straight premierships in 40 years. And there are many new milestones ahead. Brian, is well, the that, identification and development of young talent the Panthers' greatest strength? It, it is, John, and that's what we rely on every year when we've got to lose a million dollars' worth of players out of our salary cap. We trust the system. We don't panic. We know, uh, like Crichton, he's been offered a fortune to go to the Bulldogs. We couldn't afford that in our salary cap, but we know the system will fix that problem, and it's fixed it every year so so far in the last four years, and we're very confident we've got two young gun centres uh, ready to take over from where Crichton was. Uh, Spencer Lanou, the uh, front uh, front rower as well. There's plenty of young kids to do that. So as Matt Cameron always says, and he set the system up, that if we trust the system, we'll be right. But if we don't trust the system, we'll make silly mistakes and we could bugger it up. Yes. You know, there's one lofty gull that must have crossed the minds of Panthers stalwarts, and that's the all-time record of 11 straight premierships by St George in the 50s and 60s. You've got eight to go. <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I think back in those days, John, there was no salary cap or so forth. We played under those rules where we could keep all the players for 11 years. Mm. We'd probably give it a shake, but under these conditions, it's very, very difficult. If we if we can get to the four, Pete, it would be outstanding because that's never been done apart from the St George era. Mm. Your association with Panthers began long before you were appointed CEO in 2016. As I mentioned in the intro, you'd been a member of the board for five years, beginning as a director, then vice-chairman, and eventually appointed chairman. Now, the organisation back then, you tell me, wasn't as financially sound as it is today. No, John, it was it was really struggling then. Uh, we had massive debts and high interest rates back in those days, and uh, we had to sell a few clubs to get our debt down and so we could operate properly. Uh, we had a football side back, back then that was losing more games than they were winning, and we were sort of spending a lot of money in the football area and not getting results. So mm. it was a tough, few, tough few years, but we got through that, and um, and now we're sitting there now with a very profitable football side, thanks to Ivan, the coaches, and the players. And um, it, as I said, if we stick to the systems, that part of our business is in very, very good shape. Yeah, as Matt says, trust the system. Exactly. Prior to your move to the CEO's role, many people were unaware of your passion for the game of rugby league. When did that start? Uh, John, I always had a passion for rugby league. I, I wasn't sort of an out there rugby league uh, supporter, but uh, back back at uh, in, when we were at Hawkesbury Race Club, uh, my chairman, Ted McCabe, had a great relationship with the vice chairman of Panthers, Terry Heitman, mm. and they uh, put a deal together where Panthers sponsored Hawkesbury Race Club and Hawkesbury Race Club sponsored Panthers. And, and that relationship went on for many years and uh, we had a great relationship with Ted and also uh, Terry Heitman and the Panthers board. But, uh, you know, I used to, when I first come to Sydney, uh, 
it, it, it was great. Uh, I came in 89 and Panthers won a competition in 91. So I got mm. the taste of, of winning pretty quickly. Mm. Let's look at your role as the Panthers Group CEO. Uh, you oversee the operation of uh, licensed clubs, five, I believe, all up. Panthers, of course, is the flagship. What are the other four? Uh, we've got a, a very large club, John, at Port Macquarie, uh, a reasonable size club at uh, Bathurst, one at Glenbrook in the Blue Mountains, and uh, one at North Richmond, and as you said, the flagship one at Penrith. What's the total membership, Brian, across those five clubs? It's 110,000, John. Mm. How many so people does the group employ? We employ, uh, in, with our permanent casuals and so forth, we've got over 900 employees. So we're a pretty big business. We, uh, our turnovers, are, our revenue is $140 million a year. Me. You're very conscious of the ongoing contentment of those thousands of members, you're constantly looking for ways to give them a reason to go to their local club. And we've got to be aware of that, John, because we've got a lot of competition these days with with hotels and, and new restaurants opening up in the area because it's a lot more people are coming there. But we've got to always realise if our customers are in pain, we've got to realise what that pain is and we've got to fix it. So they keep coming back to our place. And we treat them like, we try to treat everybody like a guest mm-hmm. and we try to treat our employees like people. And I think if we can get those two things right, our business will continue to succeed. The Panthers Club has been reinvesting in assets right throughout your time there. A multi storied car park was one initiative followed more recently by the opening of a wonderful community and conference centre and a Pullman hotel right on the Panthers precinct. It's a pretty impressive sight from Mulgoa Road when you're driving past. Yes, John, it's a magnificent building and uh, it was something that I, I was proud that um, I was able to, to look out my window from my office and look at a car park that was just parking cars and mm. had come up with the idea to build a hotel there. And we finished up, we spent $121 million and we built 153-room Pullman Hotel, a community centre and a thousand-seated conference centre. So it's a big business. It's been open for six weeks. It's starting to trade very well. And uh, mm-hmm. with the new airport opening in 26 and the refurbishment of the stadium across the road starting in, at the end of 24, uh, it'll become a very lucrative business for us. You're privileged to work with a board whose principal focus is on community. Peter Graham, chairman, as you mentioned earlier, Greg Alexander, legend, Mark Mulock, Rob Wern and Johnny Farragher. And you tell me they're an absolute pleasure to work with. They are, John. You've got to be blessed uh, when you're working with boards and uh, a lot of uh, CEOs don't have the luck that I've had with boards and this board I've got now is outstanding. They let us, they realise that they pay us, they pay us well to do a job and let us do the job and uh, mm. and as you said, they're very community minded. We spend a lot of money in the community. We sponsor netball, cricket, basketball yeah. and then we do domestic violence and we do the homeless as well. So mm. we're community that's that's what we're there for is to look after the community and we don't take our eye off that either Mm. it's so good to see john farragher on that board of directors he was a penrith forward himself who was left a quadriplegic when a scrum collapsed on him way back in 1978 
What an inspiration yeah. this bloke's been, mate. He's worked in some capacity for Panthers for more than 40 years. Yeah, no, he's he's sort of Mr. Panthers, actually. Um, uh, John, um, everybody knows John. He worked there on the door for 40-odd years and uh, it was only last year before last that he joined the board as a director and he's a great asset to the place because he knows what the, the people on the ground need inside the club and... Uh, he comes from a town called Gilgandra, close to my town, Canamble, mm. and um, he's you know, he's a wonderful asset. And as I said, he, even Roy Simmons, he could, keeps very close to him because he knows if he's on shaky ground, the bloke that can save him's John. <laughs> <laughs> you were born on Christmas Day, 1953, in Canamble, as you said, on the Central Western Plains. Your parents were workers. Your dad, Dick, worked at the local hardware store and mum was from a well-known farming family, and the first thing you learned from them was a work ethic. Yeah, yes, John, I've always uh, I've had a great work ethic, and uh, we, had, we had the same mum and dad always made us get up and go to school, whether we were sick or not, so we learned. We learned uh, from them, and it's it's been great for me. And and it's it sort of went on from there. My two daughters have had the wonderful worth ethic as well, and I'm very proud of of that. And um, I'm proud of that that I can do at the club. I'm the CEO, mm. the group CEO, but I can do what the cleaner does as well. And uh, and yeah. I'm not frightened to do that. So. No, I know that. You pick up a mop with the best of them. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You're not the first notable racing person to hail from the town. Pat Parker, long-term CEO of the Sydney Turf Club, was another product of Canamble. Yeah, Pat went to – he started there when he was a junior, actually, and I remember Don's story telling me when he was ready to retire that he needed the tip truck to take his superannuation away. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I heard that at the time. <laughs> Another native of Canamble was the former outstanding race caller and a wonderful media presenter, the late Tony Campbell, sadly missed to this day. Yes, Tony. I, I was great mates with Tony. I played in a lot of, a lot of cricket with Tony and uh, we won a few comps for the uh, Colts Cricket Club in Canamble. And uh, Tony was a household name in Canamble. He used to play, had, a, had his own band and so forth. And... Uh, it was very sad to see him pass away with that, that rotten disease, cancer. And um, But it, he, was, he was a wonderful man. He certainly was and played a mean piano when he was in the mood, didn't he? Yes, he had all the young girls jumping up and down in the bush. <laughs> <laughs> and the late John Lundholm, a remarkable trainer who dominated uh, Western Districts racing for many, many years. And Brian, didn't he know when to bring one to town? He certainly did, and if he brought it to town, nine times out of ten, it would win. Mm. He had those good horses, Native Orchids, Gay Berets, and uh, mm. it was it was just he just didn't bring them down unless they he thought they could win. And as I said, nine times out of ten, they did. He was a wonderful trainer. He was the leading trainer there for many many years. He had a wonderful combination with my brother-in-law Dennis Firth, the jockey. Mm. I think Dennis won twenty-three or twenty-four premierships straight, and uh, they were a wonderful combination. And uh, Yes, and um, they've got the enclosure of the race course, Sarah Canamble, named after him, which is when so it should be as well. John's son and grandson followed him into the horse training business. 
Yes, yeah, they're both at Dubbo, and they, I think young Clint, the grandson, mm. he was the leading trainer in the Western Districts in this last uh, uh, racing season. So he, he's uh, caught a, plenty of knowledge has been passed on to him through old John and young John, and now on to Clint. Mm. And the brother-in-law you mentioned, Dennis Firth, was a fabulously successful jockey in the Western Districts for many, many years. And uh, as you said, uh, multiple premiership winner. And I'm pleased to say he was uh, a subject on our podcast maybe six or seven months ago. If anybody would like to catch up on the career of Dennis Firth and racing in that region during his wonderful career. Now, Brian, on leaving school, you went straight to work for the State Bank where you'd spend a few years learning about customer service and that's something that would serve you well in later years. During the time, in fact, you were 21, you suffered a major health scare when diagnosed with a brain tumour. Turned your world upside down for a while. Yes, yes, John, it was sort of uh, when you're young, you don't expect anything to happen to you. And uh, I was suffering from these terrific headaches and um I went up to the Canaveral Hospital and they x-rayed it and I had this massive lump in the front of my forehead and um, they uh, shipped me straight to Sydney and, you know, I was operated on and uh, they took the lump out. They cut the top of my head open and lifted my skull up to do that. Mm. And it took a long time to get over, but, um, but luckily it was benign and um, I got a great result out of it, even though it's come back a few times to bite me, but they're all, mm. every time it has, I've been able to beat it. Hasn't affected your thinking, has it? No, 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 the brain still works. It's uh, sometimes after a late night at the hotel, it doesn't, but apart from that, it does. <laughs> you were 23 when offered the opportunity to manage the Canamble Golf Club. That was an amazing feather in your cap at just 23 years of age. Now, this is where you learned about profit and loss and the day-to-day running of a business. Yes, John, it was good. It was it was amazing, actually, how it all happened. The uh, president of the, the golf club uh, came and see me. He said, Brian, uh, our CEO, Charlie Brand, is uh, leaving in two months' time or whatever, and we want to know if you'd be interested in being the secretary manager of the golf club. And the first thing I said, well, how much are you going to pay me? And he said, 22000 And I said, I'll start tomorrow because I was on 11000 at the bank and I just bought a house for 11000 So, <laughs> So I started there and had a wonderful five years there mm. and, um, and then was able to join uh, local government after that. Yep, you went to work for the Canamble Shire, spent a decade there, and what were you doing in that 10 years? I was there. I was the accounts clerk there, and uh, we had a, a variety of jobs. And uh, I worked with uh, Shane Horan and uh, Ken Kelly, who works for me now at Penrith. And it was a wonderful thing in those days. Uh, we weren't the cleverest blokes in the world, but we were clever enough to to spread three days' work over five at the Shire. So we never got exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> You know, you had an interest in racing right through those early years and for a while I think you acted as honorary treasurer for the Canamble Jockey Club. I think you got him out of a spot of bother there at one stage. Yes, John. John, uh, The late John Scott came to see me and asked me whether I'd be treasurer and come on board with him. Uh, they were in a, uh, a 
terrible financial position and um, we, were, we were able to get them out of that in a couple of years. And I think the club got named the best run club in New South Wales and John mm-hmm. went to Sydney and I think Bob Charlie presented him with an award and so forth. And um, so that was good. And, and today I went back there last week for their cup meeting and the club's absolutely flying. It's, uh, so it's good to see that. Well, that would have been a humbling experience because when it was time for you to leave Canamble, you were bowled over by the Jockey Club's gesture in naming the racecourse grandstand after you. I hope the Brian Fletcher stand is an opulent, commanding edifice worthy of such a distinguished name. Yeah, John, I, I was bowled over and um, I'm very proud to think that um, what the efforts that I put in there and, and made the club what it, or helped to make the club what it was and to, to get the Greenstand named after. It's, it, it's good now because you can take the grandkids, go back and have a look at it and uh, see the Brian Fletcher, oh, that's pop stand and whatever. So, yeah. um, no, very proud of that and very thankful to the, to the directors at that stage who honoured me with that. Brian, we'll clear a commitment right now on the podcast, after which we'll review your very productive 28 years at the Hawkesbury Race Club. Many Australian trainers have tried their horses on Pride's Racing Cube and have given the product a tick of approval. These small but powerful extruded cubes provide the ultimate muscle fuel to help horses finish their races off while promoting gut health. Racing Cube set recipe formulation means the same premium quality proteins and essential amino acids are used in every batch produced. Racing Cube's profile and digestibility allows you to feed approximately two to three kilos less per day than similar raw grain rations. It's salt-free to help reduce irritation if you've got a horse prone to stomach ulcers. Pride's Racing Cube is available in the popular 25 kilo bag, in bulk bags, or straight into the silo if you prefer, giving you quality equine nutrition at an economical price. Talk to your local rep about Racing Cube, another winner from the Pride's Easy Feed Stable. Trainers of thoroughbreds, standard breads, and performance horses are giving it the thumbs up all around the nation. Well, it was 1989, you were 36 years of age, and you received a job offer which greatly appealed. So you and Wendy packed the bags, you put your little girl Sonia and Adele in the car, and you headed over the Blue Mountains to a brand new life as secretary manager of the Hawkesbury Race Club, which at that time was in financial difficulty. Took you about three years to get them out of it. Yes, yes, John, it was... um Back in 1989, I think it was October, I went there and um, they were in uh, dire straits financially and um, it didn't take much to, to think of how you were going to get them out of trouble. It was just a matter of getting back to basics and, and realising it was a race club. And uh, so we put our heart and soul into it for the first 18 months and um, it wasn't long then. I think they were overdrawn 600000 or something in those days and next mm. minute we got a million in the bank and uh, everything was rosy and, and the club went on from there and we, we came up with a lot of good ideas to um, increase the patronage at the race meetings and so forth. So mm. um, it, it, it was a great – it was a tough start, but a tough start didn't last long. No. 
Well, your list of achievements at Hawkesbury were legendary. We'll just look at a few of them. In 1992, you supervised the installation of a wood chip track and the construction of a new dining room. Total cost, $1 million. Bit of money 30 years ago. Yes, it was, John, yeah, because uh, we had a dining room back in those days when when I went there, like, it was terrible. You wouldn't go into the place, so we had to do something quickly. And in those days, you had access to the Racecourse Development Fund, Mm. which the club, unfortunately, didn't use it enough where they should have had the dining room built probably years prior to it. But I knew how how the system worked. I'd uh, received money for it when I was at Canamble, and um, so we got we got those things done. That was just a couple of little things to kick off with, and then uh, we went from there with other inventions. You certainly did. Nineteen ninety five, in went a sand track and a new bee grass. Cost one point four million. Yeah, that, the bee grass was probably a great achievement because it was put in, it was planted. It wasn't just laid down over the top of um, of the of the soil. And it's probably as jockeys, Larry Cassidy told me it was the best track he's ever ridden on. Mm. He said because the turf, the roots went right down deep into the ground, and they didn't get a lot of kickback from it. So mm. that was good. It's still there today, and it's a great asset to the club. 1998, and with strong committee support, you oversaw extensive track refurbishment featuring a camber upgrade on the course proper. Total, $1.8 million. This was always something that uh, Darren Beebden used to remind me of how bad the camber was. And uh, you don't take much notice because... I don't ride horses or anything, but when you really had a look at it, it used to, instead of coming back in towards the running rail, it used to go to the outside fence. Yeah. So um, he was smart enough to know how to, how to ride it, how to ride that can, but, but a lot weren't. But it, it got a little bit dangerous, so we had to fix it, and we did. Mm. I remember when I first started race calling, Brian, I'd do the Hawkesbury meetings for the Macquarie Network. Very few races went by that something didn't spear off on the home turn. Yeah, well, and that was why, yeah, because the camber was wrong. Yeah, went the wrong way. Yeah, over the years of filling up and all that sort of stuff, Mm. um, it just went the wrong way. By 2002, your reputation as a money manager had become legend in the racing industry, so much so that you were appointed as a consultant to both the Orange and the Canamble Clubs who were both in financial difficulty. You were a busy boy then. The club sort of had a feeling, because I came from the bush, that we should do something for bush racing. And Canamble, unfortunately, uh, went back into a stage of where they needed some financial help. So we went there and helped them and got them out of trouble. And Orange was the same thing. It was close to us, and a lot of our trainers used to go there. And they used to come to my office and say, Brian, you've got to do something with Orange, you know. Mm. It's falling apart and so forth. And um, I went up to Orange and spoke to the chairman, Peter Ward. Mm. And uh, my idea was Canamble and um, Orange, they couldn't afford to keep maintaining the tracks and so forth. So I said, what I'll do, I'll go to both towns and I'll talk to the council and get them to take over that large expense. And... um, the, so I went to Orange first on my way to Canamble and the chairman said to me, I'll go with you. I said, no, I want to go on my own. I said, because <laughs> I'm going to paint some dire pictures here. So I went to the council, told mm. them, 
that there'd be no racing here in Orange within six months if you didn't take over the maintenance and everything. So they all come out next day, met me at the race course and give it a tick. And I think they still do it today. And that's a large expense you don't have to pay. You pulled out the heavy artillery. Yeah, and I went to Canamble. Had a mate on the council, Jack Cannon, I played cricket with. Yeah. So I rang him. I said, Jack, just wise a few up so, so we got the numbers. He said, it'll be right, leave it to me. And um, <laughs> I went up there and spoke to them and uh, we got that through as well. So it was another big savings. And, yeah. and then both clubs, we got them out of trouble financially sound. And as I said, Canamble was operating terrific today and, and so is Orange. Yeah, yep. They both kicked on and they're still kicking. <laughs> Now, yes. 2003, Brian, you took great pride in completing the magnificent Ted McCabe Function Centre at a cost of $3.8 million. We'll talk about Ted later, but it's fair to say that Function Centre has paid for itself many times over. Uh, yeah, John, that was one of the smartest things that I was involved in there. And as you said, it's paid for itself many times over. It seats 400 people. And uh, to name it after Ted McKay to give me great pleasure because um, Ted was the, the gentleman who was the chairman when I first went there and he looked after me uh, financially and so forth uh, when I needed a pay rise. Because mm. in 89, 90, interest rates were 19% when I bought my first house. So uh, <laughs> uh, Ted always made sure that I was getting it up enough money and, and that, and uh, we became great mates, and um, mm. to have that named after him is something special. Mm. Well, Brian, you've just reminded me of the fact that during the years at Hawkesbury, you fielded more than one offer from the AJC, as it was then, and other race clubs too uh, on occasions, but you were always intensely loyal to Hawkesbury. Yes, John, I, I was lucky. I had a few few offers. I had an offer to go to Macau. I uh, had an offer to run country racing through the AJC. Mm. Uh, and I even had an offer to, to go to Eastern Suburbs Leagues Club through uh, Jack Gibson. So, mm. But I stayed where uh, the people were good to me until I got my feet on the ground properly. And, um, and they rewarded me for my success there, which was great. So mm. there wasn't any need to leave. No. Perhaps the achievement that gave you the most pleasure during the Hawkesbury years was the introduction of a standalone provincial Saturday meeting in 2006. You had meeting after meeting with delegates from the AJC and the STC and for a while there you were swimming against the tide. What was your sales pitch in the beginning? Look, John, I, I just thought that the Sydney clubs needed a rest after their carnivals, and the easiest way to do that we're in the in the in the city area that we have a standalone Saturday for all the people out in the Hawkesbury district, so they can come to a big race meeting, big prize money, and so forth. So I started the pitch with John Nicholson, who was a racing manager at the STC, and Cole Tuck at the AJC, and naturally I've got fierce. They they were really didn't tolerate the idea at all, and neither did Tony King or Pat Parker. So, but I didn't give up. And then Racing New South Wales uh, was formed, and uh, I remember getting a letter of Merv Hill telling me not to apply again, mm. and um, that was the last time. And I just um, went back to Merv, and I just said, Merv, you won't be there forever, so that's not going to happen. So, yeah. um, and sure enough, Merv moved on. About oh, eight or nine months later, and um, Peter Valandis 
became the new CEO and uh, there's that name again. Bob Landis, <laughs> <laughs> have you heard of him? <laughs> <laughs> well, he went from um, Harold Park to racing yeah. New South Wales in that era. Yeah, and now he's the most powerful man in New South Wales. Mm. It's, it's <laughs> and, looking that way. <laughs> and um, and I just before Peter got comfortable there, I went to Peter and I said, Peter, this has got to happen. You know, mm. you can't, you've got to share these dates. And uh, fortunately, Peter um, convinced he, his board and uh, we were granted one. I think it was might have been back in 2006 or something. But mm. they're all around Australia now and they're the best thing that ever happened. You know, yeah, like you get yeah. to Newcastle, have one, Kembler, and that's uh, at least – it wasn't just Hawkesbury at the end of it. Everybody everybody got one as well, Gosford and Wyong and so forth, mm-hmm. and Bendigo, Mornington. So uh, the idea was uh, was okay. I remember the big day so clearly. It was the 29th of April, 2006. There'd been a bit of rain in the Hawkesbury Valley on the Friday night, and I think everybody at your club were on their toes but it dawned fine and clear into a beautiful afternoon. You had a monster crowd, great atmosphere, plenty of runners. Horse called Barberton won the Woodlands Crown. Horse called Fighting Fun, trained by the late Guy Walter, won the Rowley Mile with Cathy O'Hara on board. And the Free Stater won the Hawkesbury Guineas for the Paul Cave Stable. Gee, it was a mighty day. It it was a mighty day, John. I think on that day we made... As big a profit on that day as we'd made for the rest of the 11 months of the racing season. Mm. And that was one of the ideas of getting the date as well. It's a big day. You can make a lot of money and uh, people will come to that. And, and we proved that. And from that day on, we didn't have any knockers about it. Uh, and the the Sydney trainers and so forth, they supported us. Peter, Peter Snowden was unbelievable. He'd bring oh, 10 or 12 horses and John Hawkes, so they both supported that meeting so well to, to make sure it was a success, and um, and it was a great success. And has continued to be. Now, it was around this time another bold idea flashed into your mind. You were aware the nearby Richmond Air Force Base had personnel coming in regularly from other parts of Australia, sometimes from overseas, and it occurred to you that decent accommodation just across the road would be welcomed by the RAAF. How did you sell the idea of a motel on racecourse property to your committee? Well, John, I was just thinking one night, I just thought to myself, we've got a block of land there and we're past parking six buses on it probably four times a year. <laughs> <laughs> why don't why don't we build a motel on it? Like, and uh, I never had a clue what I was doing. Mm. But in the following week, I had to go to Penrith for something, and I run in, a bloke introduced me to a retired architect, and I just thought, what are you doing these days? He said, I'm just finishing a hotel at West Wylong. He said, and then I'll retire. I said, how about coming along mm. and designing one for me and and building that, and we'll pay you and so forth. So, and he agreed to that, and. Um, we went ahead. The board didn't have any great dramas with it. They thought it was a good idea. Uh, we could fund the matter, no problems at all, with bank finance and the cash we had. And um, there it is today. Like that makes six or seven hundred thousand a year outside their racing. And uh, mm. I think James Hedo, the CEO now, said, like last year, that was the profit that the club made was oh. the, was mm. the motel. Two thousand and nine, you were made a life member 
by the Hawkesbury Club. People wonder about the significance of that particular accolade, Brian, but it really is the ultimate compliment. Yeah, yes, John. Uh, very, very proud and uh, thankful for that. Um, I'm a life member at Canaan, a life member at uh, at Hawkesbury now. So um, yes, I'm very thankful, and uh, and it's just, it's probably the good part about it is I did put a lot of effort into both places, and I feel that I'd hate to get something that wasn't justified. But in my own mind, I think I was justified, and uh, and I've left a bit of a legacy there. Yeah, have you what? 2012, and you moved another mountain. Well, maybe not quite, but you moved the winning post. You extended the length of the straight to 400 metres. On-course patrons have registered an odd complaint, but sky viewers are unaffected. Yes, John, it was always it was something that uh, the chairman then, Ted McCabe, had in the back of his head. It was only a 280-metre straight, so it was very short. Mm. And he said, Brian, can we lengthen it? And we had a look at it and we thought, yeah, we can. It'll take a fair bit to do. And I got Johnny Jeffs out to have a look at it as well. And we lengthened it and, and now it's, it's a 600-metre straight, uh, six or 400-metre straight, whatever it is. And it gives every horse a good a chance. But the winning post moved up. Uh, away from the the grandstands as well, but as I, so I say to a lot of people, most people watch it today on 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 the screens anyway, so it wouldn't matter where the winning post is. Mm. When the time arrived to make the choice between Hawkesbury and an exciting new challenge at Panthers, I'm sure there were very mixed feelings. That club at Clarendon had been such a huge part of your life. Did you to and fro for a while? John, I did, but I was lucky enough to have been on the board of Panthers having inside Howard runs and so forth, mm. and I was a little bit sceptical that the job might be too big for me, and um, I came home and spoke to Wendy and the girls, and they said, no, Dad, you're sure you're at the right age now to go, and I thought to myself, well, I'll go for four years and then I'll be ready to retire anyway if something goes a little bit haywire. And um, Hawkesbury Race Club made it difficult at that stage for me. They came back with the massive offer to stay there as well and mm. uh, I, felt, I felt a little bit guilty that way. Mm. But at the end of the day, I thought, no, I'll bite, bite the bullet and, I'll, and away I'll go and um, try something different before I retire and... Um, so I did that and um, I've been there now. I'll be in my eighth year next year and mm. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. It's been great. We've, we've had our ups and downs there. It hasn't been an easy ride, but the last four years, you know, when you're playing four grand finals and uh, it, it's a wonderful to be a little, as I said, a little part of it and uh, as Nathan said, it hasn't ended. Many people have had an impact on your life and your career, but there are three who gave you special friendship and consultation over a long period of time, beginning with the late John Bryan, former president of the Canamble Jockey Club. Yeah, John was a lo lovely friend and always somebody you could lean on for advice. He was a very, very successful stock and session agent and a, uh, a grazier in, in Canamble and uh, he was president of the Jockey Club for a long time. We became uh, great friends and... Um, and his wife Judy. Uh, we actually we both live in the same complex at Neutral Bay, mm. and unfortunately, in April this year, um, John had a bleed on the brain and uh, oh wasn't well for a few weeks and passed away, which was very sad. 
and you lost a wonderful friend. Yes, for sure. Brian, the late Ted McCabe, we've mentioned him already, who died in 2009, was near and dear to you for a long, long time. He was president of the Hawkesbury Race Club for many years. He was well known as the manager of Jack and Bob Ingham's famous Belmont Park Spelling and Pre-Training Complex at North Richmond, where he did a fantastic job. He was a lovely man, Ted McCabe. Yes, John, he, he was one of the best. Um, he was a lovely lovely chairman, but more so he was a lovely friend. And uh, he was an expert in the horse game, breaking all the Ingham horses in and so forth out of Belmont Park. Many a day I went out there and watched the operation. And uh, he, he was excellent at his job, Bob and uh, Jack trusted him. But he, he just, yeah, became a great friend of mine and uh, he he had battles with skin cancers most of his life and uh, mm. poor bugger, the operations he had to get them cut out of his back and so yeah. forth. Yeah. And eventually it took its toll and uh, I remember he walked into my office two days before he passed away to say goodbye and it was probably, you know, one of the saddest days of my life and oh, uh, just to see him walk out and know that, you know, it would only be a day or so before. But he was a tough bugger. Like, even to do that, mm. to still be on his feet, he, he never gave in. No, you'd like a horse as tough, wouldn't you? Oh, God almighty. <laughs> and then there was the inimitable Jack Gibson, who died in 2008. He was a top-class rugby league player himself. He was an iconic coach and in later life a very entertaining radio and television commentator. Jack gave you wise counsel many times. Yes, John. Jack, uh, when I left Canamble, there was an, an SP bookmaker there called Ray High, and he's very good friends with Jack Gibson. And he rang Jack and, and he just said, Jack, you might be able to help and look after this young bloke from Canamble. He's going down to be uh, secretary manager of the Hawkesbury Race Club. And uh, sure enough, Jack, I got there in about my first month. Jack rang me, mm. introduced himself and... Uh, Said, Brian, anything you need and so forth. Um, I'm tied up with the brothers out of San Miguel at North Richmond. And we be became great friends. Jack used to ring me probably twice a month to check on me in the early days. Mm. And then he had some sadness with one of his sons, uh, passed away out of San Miguel. And yeah. from that day on, Jack held a race meeting at um, at Hawkesbury to raise money for the San Miguel home, mm. and uh, he used to raise a hundred thousand every year and bring all the celebrities out and so forth. And uh, mm. yeah, I was fortunate enough to go to his last public function. His wife invited me to it, and uh, it was just a special day. But um, and Jack, you know, slowly lost his memory. It was sad to see what happened to him as well. But he, mm. he, he was a man of immense power. He rang me one day. And he said, Brian, how much are you on? And I told him I was on 60000 or something like that. Mm. He said, how would you like to double it? I said, oh, geez, I said, I think everybody would like to do that. <laughs> yeah. I said, why? He said, you're in the last two for the Eastern Suburbs Secretary Manager's job. Oh. I said, Jack, I haven't put in for <laughs> He said, no, well, you're in. He said, the chairman will ring you in half an hour and... You can, he'll set up an interview for you. And um, sure enough, that's what happened. I went in and had the interview and um, I didn't take the job. I wasn't strong. I hadn't been in the game as a CEO for too long. So I just didn't have, didn't think I had the power to run it. And uh, mm. he rang me and thanked me. And from that day on, uh, you know, he, he, as I said, he'd ring me every month to ask me what was going on and so forth. And mm. um, he was just a wonderful, wonderful friend. 
Let me throw this one at you for the devout racing fans. You miss very few Hawkesbury race meetings in that 28 years. What was the best horse you ever saw compete on the Clarendon track? John, I think it was Tara Doom, mm. trained by Gary Fraser. And uh, he, he was a good horse, a very good horse. He went on to win some big races in town and uh, in Queensland as well. Yeah. So, well, his overall record, he raced 47 times, Brian. I just checked him out. Um, he won nine. He ran 12 placings. He won almost 900000 A lot of money back then. Imagine oh, what yeah. it would be worth today. He won the George Main Stakes, which is now the King Charles III, when it was worth $300,000. Last Saturday it was worth $5 million. Um, <laughs> now, And he won a Queensland Derby too, didn't he, for Gary yes. Fraser? Yes. Yeah, that's correct, yeah. Hmm? No, he's a great horse. Your best mate and your strongest supporter always is wife Wendy who's overcome some health issues of her own, but she's currently right at the top of her game. Hasn't she been a wise-sounding board? Yeah, John, she has. She's been marvellous. Actually, when you come down to Sydney and you've got to work long hours to, to be successful and so forth, she was always here with the two girls and uh, making sure they were educated properly. And uh, as you said, she's had her own health issues and she's got over them and uh, she's in fine fettle now. She's... Uh, very authoritarian at home, and um, <laughs> she's, uh, but apart from that, no, all's well, and uh, we're, we're pretty lucky. We're in the prime time of our of our life, and uh, we're mm. enjoying the two daughters, the four grandchildren, and um, life's good. Brian, those two girls are doing very well in the workforce. The eldest, Sonia, is a Dean of English at the King School at Parramatta, and Adele is a partner in a law firm in Sydney. And I know you're very proud of both. Yeah, no, John, they've done well. And um, they, and they, 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 they've earned what they've got because they studied hard and everything. And they used to get a little bit cranky inside themselves because some kids would say, oh, it's easy for you, Adele, or it's easy for you, Sonia. Mm -hmm. And they'd say to, to, to Wendy and myself, that, that it really gives you the pips at because... Mm -hmm. They didn't study, and we studied hard. Mm. That's why we're smart. You know, they could be as smart as us if they'd done the same amount of hours and study. Yeah. So they 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 weren't just. Admittedly, they'd have to have some sort of a gift in the brain, but uh, mm. they worked hard at it, and they're getting the results now, which is great. You're turning seventy on Christmas Day this year. How long can we expect to see Brian Fletcher guiding the destiny of the Panthers Group? John, uh, the chairman, I don't, the chairman came and wanted to see me about six months ago and asked me where I was at as far as continuing to work at uh, Panthers or retire. And I said, look, I was thinking about retiring this Christmas. I'll be 70. And he said, right, just hold it there. Mm. He said, I'll, let, I'll say something now. Let's take that off the table and you stay here until we finish the new stadium at the start of 2026, mm. and uh, I said, yeah, okay, I'm happy with that. I said, but only on one condition. I said, if you see me slipping at all, tap me on the shoulders because one thing I don't want to be, I don't want to be here when I shouldn't be here because mm. a lot of people in my position that get well paid, they stay too long and that's something I don't need to do.
Yeah, and I'm sure you won't. You've been a visionary all of your working life. You've dared to dream, Brian, and more often than not, you've made that dream come true. You're a very inspirational bloke. And I've enjoyed the many times we've worked together on and off the racetrack. Thanks for your company on a podcast produced by Supernova Sound. Lovely to catch up. Thanks, John. You've been a wonderful friend. In 2019, a horse race called the Golden Eagle swooped onto the Sydney racing scene just like the bird of prey after which it is named. The first two editions of the new four-year-old race carried $8 million. Last year it went to $10 million and it's the same this year. 10% of that prize money will go to charities nominated by the owners of Golden Eagle Runners. Colding overcame a chequered passage to win the first Eagle for Chris Waller and Glenn Boss less than a month after winning the Epsom. In 2020, 18 four-year-olds slogged through heavy nine going with victory going to Godolphin's Colette who'd won the Oaks in her previous preparation. It was a magic moment for young jockey Kobe Jennings, whose weight problems are well documented. Colette beat another mare, Ice Bath, who would go on to run four Group 1 placings before finally winning at the elite level two years later. There's a sad aspect to the 2021 edition, won by I'm Thunderstruck, snatching victory in the last few strides from Count de Rupee by a bizarre twist of fate. Both of those wonderful horses have since passed on. I'm Thunderstruck died following knee surgery this year, while Count de Rupee suffered a cardiac arrest in a Kembla jump out in 2022. Last year it was expat New Zealander, I wish I win, the horse born with a twisted foreleg. It hasn't worried him because he was gallant in beating quality mare Fan Girl. Part owner and trainer Peter Moody was delighted to renew his association with jockey Luke Nolan, the black caviar combination. Saturday, November the 4th is the date and the Golden Eagle will be supported by the Giga Kickstakes, the Rose Hill Cup and the Four Pillars as the Sydney Spring Carnival rolls on.